This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Conspiranormal. Hello. Hey, Alan. Hey, can you hear me all right? Yeah, I can hear you. There we go. Me and they're hearing me all right. Uh, the last program I did, I don't know, I sounded like I was uh, on the moon, the far side. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you don't sound like that now. So, oh, okay. So, I think what it is, if I talk loud, which I do when I get excited, it's a Jewish thing, you know. I don't apologize for it, but it's still, it overamps my mic. So let me know. Just say, Alan, in the politest possible way, shut up. <laughs> How you doing, Ren? Hey, can you hear me okay? Oh, yeah, I can hear you just fine. Great. Hey, Alan. Hey, Ren, how you doing? You're the genius. (laughs) Well, I don't know about that. You cracked the code ever since, unfortunately, the original founder of the Lexicon program died a horrible death. But don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Ron Bonds, who published it, died a horrible death. But don't worry about it. You're probably okay. I mean, you're still kicking, so... (laughs) <laughs> well, I, I just publicize it. I just <laughs> use it. I had no clue. The first time I saw it, I said, oh, that's nice for you to limit people, but for me, uh, what am I going to do with it? And then I decided to run Orthon, and the universe opened up for me. <laughs> you know, uh, Alan, I'd like to talk a little bit about, at some point, tonight i want to talk a little bit about some of the investigations that you've been on because that's something that i don't think i've heard anybody really talk to you about well the synchronicities just keep on happening like i thought like some of the ufo we, investigations yeah i i was thinking well why don't we talk you know we talk a lot about the hellier thing and i cannot praise those people enough for yeah. you know, their bringing investigation real investigation not the crappy stuff on the on the uh, History Channel, um, and even the Science Channel, I think. Um, uh, they, they have done the first non-expose. They were doing the real thing, and it just shows the others up. However, 
um, I thought, well, it might be good to talk to some, about some of my field investigations and why I think theirs is so real. So, sure. Well, that, that's yeah, I think that's, that's, yeah, I think that would be a good thing to talk about. Yay, Alan! Thank you very much. <laughs> Yay, Alan! <laughs> yeah. Being uh, folks, uh, truth in packaging. How's everybody doing through this, like, hard time we got going on right now <laughs> I hope you should read my little editorial today I don't, I don't yeah I saw, about, I, I saw uh, that it, 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 I, it's called technically the Jewish Tower but I call it the lightning struck tower after <laughs> the tarot card because that's what it makes me think of. these people are Yiddish lesson of the day Meshuganah which is a word that needs very little translation. They, are, they clearly have no idea. Let's all, let's two floors at a time. There's probably oh, 7,500 people per floor. Meet every week in the lobby or, you know, one of the auditoriums or something to see how you're feeling. Well, the first person that says, not, not, not really so good, we're all dead, you know. And they say, they send us another letter. Well, we're sorry you're all dead. <laughs> <laughs> and my last words will be, Thompson, something <laughs> How are you doing, Ren? I'm doing all right. Honestly, not a lot has changed for me. I already worked from home. And, uh, you know, I guess I'm not going out to bars and stuff, but I didn't really do much of that to begin with anyway so mostly um mostly it's just weird going out in public because everything's really dead there's this palpable sense of doom in the air um you know it's exciting living in the first days of the apocalypse <laughs> it's still yeah, first days to be said about. With, with that uber in washington no i think it's the last days of mother earth no, not, <laughs> before people panic, I really think this will come and go, but a lot of people are going to die because of incompetent fools here and halfway around the world. And I think the Chinese, who are I'm not overly a fan of, are lying through their teeth about the number of cases there. I don't even, I don't like the thing where they say it's the Chinese flu. You know, the French disease, that would be syphilis. <laughs> they don't know where it came from they don't know anything about it that's the scary part except that it has very mega flu-like symptoms you know so I've been through so many of these things I mean I'm old enough to remember when I was in grammar school the last and it was literally the last in America anyway uh, polio uh, epidemic and they made a yeah. stand for three days, but there weren't any more polio epidemics after that. So I'm sure they'll come up with something somewhere in the neighborhood of 20, 29, 2030, something, you know, for the remaining humans upon the earth. We'll call on the secret chiefs. They already know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> Let's, uh... So let's get into it, guys. Um, I'm Phil, looking at that skull with the with the fez on, so it's very hard for me to be optimistic. Put a picture on of you. Like, <laughs> yeah. That's our that's our that's our lo that's our logo, logo. Alan. That's yeah, our logo. well, I'm my logo, so you know. 
showing me in my dramatic form. It used to be me with uh, full military regalia carrying a uh, Ruger Mini-14 with a bayonet, which <laughs> Rugers are fairly small, and you'd have to be awfully close to somebody to bayonet them, but it looks cool, so what did I care? But. All right, well, it's just like, you know... I'll, we'll, I'll just get us started. We'll just take the conversation wherever we want to take it, guys. Ren, you know, feel free anytime, whatever you want to you want to come in. Uh, yeah, I got plenty so. of uh, very esoteric things to, to ask Alan yes. about. So, Okay, excellent. 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 Okay, all right. Well, all of my answers are obscure, ergo esoteric. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Conspiracy Normal, guys. Uh, we have a powerhouse tonight. We've got two of our uh, most favorite guests that we've had on before, and that's Ren Collier. Hey, everyone. So, hey, what's up, Ren? Good to have you back. This is probably like the 15th time or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> and very special guest, Alan Greenfield, on the line, too. Who ran the gauntlet today, so I'm a member of the tribe, so to yeah, speak. You, you, you did run the gauntlet today, apparently, yeah. yeah. You, you have no idea. I understated it all. My image going through was sardines the whole way. And the people standing in line on top of each other, I really shouldn't say this on the air. I told it to my girlfriend, and I thought... Uh, this is probably really a bad thing to say, but it's okay. I'm, you know, I'm, a lot of my friends were children of people. It reminded of people, Jewish people, waiting at Auschwitz to get in the shower. I mean, they were standing on top of each other just to, to, to uh, can I say bitch? I just did. At the management about whatever was bothering them that day, just like any other day. And I thought, this is, you're going to get mail on that. I should have said it. <laughs> it's just insane. And that was to get a box of Passover goods that my counselor brought me, but they wouldn't allow her in the building, even though she's got three clients here. Uh, so she had to leave it outside, and some guy breathing heavily on it uh, from the staff was standing over it. So, and uh, uh, I did not have the foresight to get masks. I had gloves on, and I grabbed it and literally ran to the elevator. Up until then, yeah. good. <laughs> up until then, I've been waiting till after midnight. My original reason was they called me the bicycle guy. Why? Because I'm the only person here who apparently gets any kind of real exercise. So I got sick of being called the bicycle guy. These people I've known, you know, they've known my face for years, but I'm still the bicycle guy to 90% of them. And <clears throat> that's okay, but uh, I wait till after midnight and there's nobody there except the person at the desk who's behind a glass wall. And I go out and I either run a mile or so, or I ride a mile or so, depending on the weather and my mood and so forth. But, uh, this was at 2.30 in the afternoon, and they don't ordinarily show up to show how, how grand their lives are to wait for the mail to come around 4.30 or 5. So before that, they're not there, and after the mail shows up, they disappear. So I figured I was okay, but no, 2.30 in the afternoon, there were three, three maybe four times as many people in the medium-sized lobby 
as either standing in line or standing on top of one another, almost literally. And I'm trying to, you know, just get my box and get the hell out of Dodge or the lobby. Yeah, in case. Understandable. Yeah. yeah, ran back to the elevator, had a special finger coated in that slime that they give you to kill viruses and uh, got back on the elevator and, oh, God, never again, never again. I have to sneak down to pay my rent uh, Friday, uh, but uh, I'll sneak down at midnight. It doesn't say when. It just says, you know, do it. Yeah, yeah. It's best to be careful these days for sure. So, Alan, you know, when we had you on last year, last November, we had you like did. Our own, what yeah, did we say? did. <laughs> I did not say any of those things, and I was out. You of revealed the all the secrets. It was yeah. assassinated. I swear it. I was in Israel <laughs> digging up trees and things. You, you told you told us you told us everything, but I, I had I had no idea that you and the secret cipher of the Euphonauts played such a big part in Hellier. Until I watched Hellier, probably about like three or four weeks after I'd had you on. So I kind of wanted to get Ren on too to talk about this because you guys both have a lot of insight into this. And like, you know, uh, you you sing the praises of Hellier pretty highly. I, uh, Alan, I guess, you know, since they've kind of, this has kind of been a renaissance for you in a way. Because you've been able to, like, a lot of the books, the Secret Cipher is selling a lot because of Hellier. So I just wanted to kind of get your thoughts on it. The unrelated book, uh, my most current book, uh, God Never Does the Same Thing Twice, uh, is selling well, too. And I can only attribute that to people saying, oh, look at the name. Same Uh, name. It must be something just as profound. And they buy that, too. But nevertheless, I was amazed at how much they used it. I mean, I, I've uh, known uh, Greg Newkirk for years. Uh, I didn't know how deeply he was involved in investigations. Uh, but uh, uh, when they uh, started to get ready to do the first season, they asked me some questions. Mostly, I thought, you know, just background information. And when it was on, it was like... <sighs> I don't want to overdo it, but it seems like they were doing it by the the interviews in the back of my book, which was an afterthought, <laughs> you know. So, <laughs> so I said, uh, so they, uh, yeah, Greg wrote me and said, uh, where is this Terry guy? And I said, well, I don't know. I haven't seen him since 1990-something or other, but if you find him, he's got all of my back issues of... Uh, uh, I mean, going back to the 1940s of the Shaver material from Amazing Stories, because uh, I loaned it to him. I, whenever I loan something to anybody, uh, <laughs> the chances of getting it back are 60-40 uh, against. And I was out of town for a while uh, to writing Secret Cipher and Secret Rituals. And when That's, I got that back, stuff got that stuff got kept. Yeah. yeah. Didn't uh, he, didn't uh, Rist also take your um, Shaver rock books that you had? Yeah, Shaver sent me, he would literally send me a letter folded around a bunch of rocks. 
And I only have one of those letters surviving. It's not very important. He says, you don't obviously don't understand the pictures in the rocks. You think that that's a priestess doing a ritual, and it's clearly a woman feeding birds. So that's <laughs> the sort of thing Shaver had to say to me. But I learned a lot about Shaver in, in talking to him because his personal conversation was as normal as anybody else's. But his typing was, you know, letters were, well, you have to be old enough to remember typewriters, but his letters were all over the place, to which he said in one of those letters, um, um, something to the effect that Dero are constantly beaming things at me, and that's why my letters are so jumbled. And mm -hmm. I thought, well, probably Ray Palmer dealt with the same thing. So mm -hmm. everything that he wrote, which was a lot of stuff, probably had to go through the same process. And the interesting thing is, I'm not sure if it was the last, but it may have been the last thing about the Shaver mystery that was published, which was his explanation of why he fled Wisconsin and moved to Arkansas, where he found rocks all over the place that had rock books, as he put it, or rock fogo, is that the term that he used? And, um, um, <clears throat> His version is pithy and very interesting, actually. Um, I believe it more now than I believed it at the time, which is apparently because when I acquired all of those uh, amazing stories, their mm -hmm. covers and their, their illustrations are as lurid. I could never understand why my mother said, well, your Uncle Bernie was interested in this, but, but Mom, <laughs> Mama said... Don't read this stuff. It's not fit for a nice Jewish boy. And sure enough, they, I mean, that the stories were, you know, a little spicy stories. I don't think that was the name of one of the magazines. But, uh, but they were, you know, the, these creepy creatures were always uh, attacking these semi-clad or totally unclad nubile <laughs> young ladies who had a terrified look on their face. Uh, throughout the 1940s, and uh, mm -hmm. I've since republished some of those. I mean, they're mal by today's standards, mm -hmm. uh, but by the, and then I think that was the equivalent of uh, you know, long before Playboy. So it was yeah. the Playboy of its day, along with True and Argosy and Saga, which were the men's magazines that had stories like. I was lost on the island of sex-starved women. <laughs> hey. I'm not going to say that, that, that Keel got his start <laughs> writing for those not magazines, a... but he did. <laughs> and Terry claimed that he was able to find the locations of some of these um, bases using the rock books, right? Or he said that there were maps contained in some of them? Uh... No, no, I don't think it was exactly that way. It's been a long time, but let me think mm. what he said. He said that he found them. He didn't specify that it was from Shaver. He did specify oh. that Shaver put him on to the idea. Shaver and several of Shaver's many witnesses who uh, I've heard run into the thousands. I've been able to find mm -hmm. dozens of those, which I have uh, republished some recently because they're you know, they were never under copyright. Anyway, yeah. that's, uh, and if it's not copyrighted, I follow in the 
in the tradition of the Mystic Arts Book Society, if it isn't nailed down by copyright, I feel very free to use it, you know, <laughs> and do. But um, um, he said, uh, Terry said something like, uh, Shaver gave me the idea, and then I did my own investigations. I said, mm -hmm. when? He said, back in the day. Well, that was illuminating. So I said, well, what did you find? And he told me about his little army of, I don't want to say misfits, but they were mostly Vietnam vets and mm -hmm. a couple of spelunkers, which was a good idea. And mm -hmm. they, um, they found some very interesting things. But I don't think it was from the rock books. He just wanted the rock books because he wasn't well acquainted with them. And at the time, I think he eventually met Shaver, but it's... Uh, I'm, and I'm guessing at that because of something he said, but at the time he didn't know about the stuff that Shaver had done once he moved to Arkansas. He knew about the stuff from uh, from Ray Palmer's Flying Saucers magazine and Search and mm -hmm. stuff like that, which was a lot later, it was 20 years later. Um, so um, when I showed him the rocks, he said, can I borrow these for a while? <laughs> I said, okay, and he said, well, you know, I'll give them back when I give back the amazing story. I said, those are originals, <laughs> I'll never get another copy. I used to know this guy, Bill Starkenstein, who probably has gone on to that, the great cavern in the depths, or in the heights. He was a good guy, but he was a bookseller in Daytona. Uh, he eventually wound up in Fort Myers and was my UFO informant there, and Bill sold me these you know, rare magazines for almost cover price, you know, and the cover price in the 1940s was like 35 cents or something, I don't know, it's printed on the cover. So I had a large accumulation of amazing, fantastic, and a few other magazines from that period. I mean, they weren't mm -hmm. the, the it wasn't like having uh, the detective stories, number one, you know, I mean, which I think is worth tens of thousands of dollars. That's the first... That's the Gil Kane Batman's introduction. Um, he didn't even have his own magazine at the time. Anyway, so um, so I said, well, yeah, borrow them, but don't keep them because, and I gave him the story, I give everybody I loan something to. Look, I only loan to people I trust, and a lot of stuff, even with the people I trust, never comes back. He's not to worry. I'll give them back. And I said, well, you know, I'm going down to Augusta to write a book. I didn't even tell him what the book was about because at that time I was not planning to, um, you know, to put uh, put his interviews at the back of it. I was planning to print them, I think, in the OTO magazine or something because mm -hmm. that's what I did with the Carrie Thornley interview, which is now a book online, apparently. Um, not my book. I mean, it's I loaned the tapes to... I can't remember his name, but he turned it into a book, which is great. I mean, Terry deserved far more credit than he got. But anyway, so Terry did that. I went down to Augusta for about four months, maybe a little longer than that. Wrote the two books together, which were published 10 years apart. Submitted both to Ron Bonds, who published the first one, and then said he was going to publish the second one, sent me in advance, but, you know circumstances mm. intervened so mm. I waited a long time and had to deal with the interference from William Gary Keith Breeze who <laughs> Billy Breeze Billy Breeze 
The breeze blew in from North Carolina <laughs> and had me trapped in his car, ironically, right next to Tallulah Gorge in North Georgia, if you know where that is. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm in his car on this narrow road, and he's saying, you know, you really shouldn't be doing this stuff. I tell this story a lot. If I've told it to, to your audience before, stop me. But he basically gave this argument that, look, the UFO stuff is, is, is destroying your good reputation because I want you to be the historian of the movement. And the occult is far more respected. And I thought, what, 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 universe, what universe is this guy living in? Because, you know, UFOs have a, I mean, they're hardly mainstream, but they're, they're a lot closer than the occult, which is assumed to be, you know, Anton LaVey and his naked priestess or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, but, um, uh, and while he was doing that, he was... Uh, playing me a demo tape uh, in the background, not my kind of music, but he was playing me a demo tape of the late, great uh, Genesis Orridge, uh, <laughs> um, who um, um, apparently he would jam with, uh, what was it called, Psychic TV? Yeah, yeah Psychic TV. Yeah, so uh, he was playing that for me, like that was the respectable music form, you know, Beethoven, Genesis Parage, you know, <laughs> and I thought, I'm not going to say anything. I'm in the OTO, I'm relatively high up, and he can push me relatively low down. <laughs> so yeah. I said, okay, Bill, but I, I, I am uh, publishing a sequel. A sequel? A sequel? <laughs> no, no. So we finally, uh, we go and he does this initiation with this guy that I thought had been initiated years ago at the infamous Syntaxis Lodge presided over by freighters Syntaxis, which I, <laughs> there was controversy, I understand, because they changed the name from Euless Lodge, which is, you know, that was my lodge, but to, into Syntaxis Lodge. And took the Euless Lodge emblem and put it over the door of their bathroom, which showed some mm. <laughs> or other. But mm. according, apparently they were dealing drugs out of the lodge and, mm. uh, and uh, doing other nefarious things. Like, uh, I mean, I have no problem with drugs. I do have a problem exposing members of a lodge who may or may not be into that to the risk of a raid or, or whatever this was. Yeah a seamy area of Atlanta that every time he would bring members of his Masonic Lodge there, I was hoping they wouldn't hear the gunshots in the distance. <laughs> have some well, feel for the neighborhood, but let me get in here real quick. And like Ren, um, you can add to this too. Like, mm -hmm. you know, Hellier was, was pretty impressive and impressed the hell out of me. I actually waited and watched the, I watched it all like the first and second seasons back to back. And so like, I just want to kind of like get your thoughts on it and like, you know, how it changed, how it's changed everything, how like, you know, and, and Alan too, like, you know, how it's really brought like the whole idea of synchronicity to the fore. What do you guys think? Ren can go first. All right. Well, um, I, I've, talked about this a little bit before but i didn't really pay any attention to hellier until i heard some people talking about it and they mentioned they brought the secret side for the euthanauts and that it was a part of it and i was like 
wait, wait, hold, hold on, what? And then I actually went and watched it and was like pleasantly surprised to see all of this esoteric and occult stuff like on a paranormal show with people that I had no idea were into this kind of stuff. Um, it wasn't long after that I uh, got initiated into the OTO and started really taking my magical practice seriously, and it's been immensely uh, useful for that. Um, you know, my, my friend Alan and myself programmed the cipher calculator after talking to Greg Newkirk, and uh, it was really happy to see that being used in season two. And I think that's like just the other night, um, Connor was doing a, a Patreon event for um, Greg and Dana's Paranormal Museum. And there were hundreds of people uh, all using the cipher all at once, like uh, tracking down different names and, and and looking things up and making connections. And it's just so cool to see that uh, happening. And like on an even on a different level, and this is something I want to eventually talk to, to Alan about on this show. Um, I, I think in a lot of ways, I, I wrote on Twitter earlier that it seems like because of the things people are getting exposed to in Hellier, and not everyone who watches Hellier is going to get this out of it, but I have the feeling that a whole new generation of, let's call them Thelemites, are being created. Um, But outside of the influence and control of the OTO, most of them are never even going to come into contact with the OTO. Right. And it's a dilemma that's kind of separated from even the long shadow cast by Crowley. You know, it's like, I don't know. It's going to be really interesting to see how this filters down. But, um, you know, I, I talked to Alan about this before um, privately about how it seems like the reason Greg and Dana were picked by, you know, if you want to call them the secret chiefs or whatever, is because they're tr- like the 93 current is is attempting to reestablish itself in sort of a new world um, because, you know, the OTO was a failure um, most mystery school traditions have effectively failed to create a new generation of people to fight back against, um, you know, what Michael Bertrand might call the Yogathians, <laughs> or, you know, you could call them the Black Lodge or whatever. And that Hellier, in a, in a sense, is sort of a, a recruiting effort for, for the good fight, as it were. Um, but I don't know, I mean... That just could be how I see it. <laughs> I don't know, Alan. What, what do you think the side effect yeah, of failure is going to be? Sort of. I'm I'm sort of post-thelemite in the sense mm-hmm. that uh, I think I used to have this argument with a priestess of the Temple of Set who would alternate the word Set with Satan, and I mm. I, I sang her a little ditty. I said uh, from the Beatles. I said. Uh, if you go carrying pictures of Chairman Mao, you ain't going to make it with anyone anyhow. <laughs> and if you go saying, I'm a Satanist, you're going to turn off like 99.999% of people. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the yeah. 0.1% that you're going to get, even though your ideas, I mean, the Temple of Set is more esoteric than the Church of Satan, or this new group of people who are entirely political and are just trying to do shock effect for political purposes. Uh, I don't even know what they call themselves, but I, uh, my youngest son thinks that they're they're fighting uh, 
the connection between state and religion, which I have mixed feelings about. But, you know, as long as it doesn't become a state religion, which I think the side subject, that's a constitutional argument. Were they against religion or were they against a state religion, which Britain had and has uh, to its detriment, actually, because it's one of the smallest religions in England now. There's the Queen and two other people that go... (laughs) Right, right, right. (laughs) Except on Easter, and they won't be doing that this year, and and, uh, Christmas, and, uh, you know, so it's state religions have a way of alienating anybody who isn't in favor of whatever the current government is. The United States didn't want to do that from the very beginning, and we didn't. So, you know, but... Mm -hmm. End of sermon from Reverend Greenfield. <laughs> amen, brother. Say amen, brother. Sir, amen, brother. So, so Alan, come on down to the mega church. We are immune from that virus because uh, Jesus. <laughs> there we were. He told they've me got, this morning. They've got, they've got antivirus fans. Yeah. Um, Brothers and brothers and sisters, are you tired of the quarantine? Well, do what thou wilt and come down to the come down to the So so Alan has like as is as Hellier kind of has Hellier kind of the more immune you are. And also I have this bottle of holy snake oil that I can give along with a uh, we use a little of it on each of our prayer cloths, and if you send a small contribution. We will send you a prayer cloth. <laughs> what was I saying before I started sermonizing? I was raised in the Deep South, so I uh, and I used to go to the uh, Oral Roberts tent meetings and stuff uh, to watch the healing techniques. I wasn't interested in his. I was just going to ask, like building on what Ren said of just like the free illuminism whether or not like Hellier has kind of brought the your this brand of free illuminism, the idea that you don't have to be part of an organization to get that to get this stuff, has that brought it to the fore, you think? It's more than that. I think what it it's approaching from a different angle. First of all, uh, I've been talking for several years, mostly in person to people about uh, the, the occult broadly, base has been uh, benefited from the late 1960s, 70s, upsurge in all kinds of new agey and uh, uh, metaphysical ideas. But that has faded because the history of, of the occult and metaphysics is it cycles in and cycles out. At the start of the 20th century, at the end of the 19th century, in that period, there was a huge, uh, for that time, a group of rather distinguished people, unlike the, you know, the somewhat less famous generation now, uh, you know, Yates and Arthur Mackin, et cetera, et cetera, um, that were interested. But it was gone by 1902, 1903, regardless of what Chick or his... Uh, rivals have to say about it, it, uh, it disappeared and then, you know, it uh, has been revived by various people who make all kinds of uh, claims. 
but they're not the original. And they, uh, by the 1930s, when Israel Regardi was involved, um, it was not the the Golden Dawn, it was the Stella Matutna, which was, uh, or however that word is pronounced, uh, and uh, that was an organization inspired by the original Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, not the Hermetic Golden Order of the Golden Dawn. So that, these organizations went to a long, dry period where the total membership, I would estimate, was in the dozens. Uh, the OTO at the time of Crowley's death was perhaps a few dozen members, and maybe not that many. And uh, that was members on the books, not necessarily. And also there were there were a lot of people that were hangers on at that time, not that there aren't now, but I mean, uh, the one lodge that is claimed by the current uh, major claimant in the United States anyway, um, uh, was uh, Agape Lodge in, what was it, Pasadena? And uh, I think that drew people in that were looking for sex and drugs and, and weirdness, and that's what they got. So um, um, you can't really say they were all, you know, initiated members of the OTO. And even those that were, they were initiated vicariously, which is not the way it's supposed to be done. So, I mean, Crowley was a dying man in England, and uh, he was a member of the initiating team in the way that you do it when you have 20 members worldwide. So um, I'm not saying it's not valid. I'm saying it's not the same thing that's done today. And it remained that way until Rigardi wrote his uh, book about Alistair Crowley. Um, um, the Eye in the Triangle, which is not all that flattering, but it's an honest book, and it brought lots and lots of people who had, you know, some kind of general interest in magic and the occult and metaphysics uh, in, and for a long time it was a growth-oriented group, but uh, hasn't been that for the last 15 years, really. Uh, maybe that's longer than I... Uh, since I departed company from them, it has been in decline. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Alan, a, a lot of... Oh, go ahead. Well, my job there, which was a dues-exempt job, was to recruit people from a certain group. Mm -hmm. And I recruited almost a thousand, but I did that at the behest of Dave Scriven, the uh, U.S. Grandmaster General, and uh, I think it was, I don't know this for a fact, but I think it was behind uh, um, Bill Breeze's back, not mm -hmm. exactly, uh, you know, lied about or anything, just not mentioned, and mm -hmm. when Breeze caught wind of it, he said, well, these are not people that I want in the OTO, and I don't know exactly at what point, but they were, almost all the people I recruited were thrown out, although some of them, I must say, um, still write me, so I must have been doing something right because they know I'm not affiliated <laughs> with that anymore. And there, yeah, what uh, happened to the laws for everyone? Uh, that wasn't commercially <laughs> 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 useful to the corporation, I guess. 
uh, cor corporate stuff was originally built, at least uh, in Euless Lodge, which is the mm -hmm. lodge I belong to, as a tax, I wouldn't call it dodge, it's probably getting on touchy <laughs> ground, but that's the way it was presented. However, then it became a real corporation because I, I gather from the uh, the recording, which is illicit, but I have heard it online, of the meeting that decided that the ninth degrees didn't trust each other, so they bring up Breeze to be the supreme, uh, the supreme leader. You know, sort of like mm -hmm. the Ayatollah, and. Uh, uh, he said his pitch was that he was going to run it like a corporation, and it is a corporation, and that's the way mm -hmm. it's run. So a lot of people I know uh, are talking about building, how do we build something new, or how do we start, and like my, my friend Kelsey had this question, because um, I asked her if she had anything she wanted to ask, and um, her question was, if you were to imagine a decentralized, all-embracing and broadly accessible iteration of like, let's say the ideals of Thelema, you know, the liberty and freedom and equality. Do you think that it would involve human hierarchies and initiatory orders in any significant way? Or do you think it would tend more towards a loose set of guidelines and broadly accessible self-initiation that would be more spirit-directed? Uh, yes and yes. And there is a book, it's out of print at the moment, mm -hmm. but it's written by one of my uh, associates, uh, Tapalamas, who lives in North Georgia, probably closer to probably closer to Adam than it is physically closer anyway mm. than, than he is to me. Uh, he wrote a book called Spirit Builders, and unfortunately, I mean, I told him, you know, it's fine to do a really expensive edition because he went to a publisher that only does, you know luxury editions and they they bought into it but it was like a when it was new it was a hundred dollar book god knows mm -hmm. what it is on the secondary book market now because mm -hmm. in case you don't know uh if you i always go to outside publishers and uh the author has very little say after the initial contract and doesn't get residuals so if it has a secondary market I mean, I'm sure that, you know, Stephen King gets residuals, but I'm yeah. not Stephen King, <laughs> nor will I ever be. Uh, but uh, uh, you don't get any any secondary sales, and immediately this expensive, and I don't know what the print run was, but it was not huge for a book that was already $100. I don't know what it's going for now, but uh, it's... Uh, it's a key book to how to do uh, small, decentralized, local bodies, and he sort of credits me with the idea. However, mm -hmm. let me say this. Uh, in the late 1990s, the uh, corporate OTO, as I like to call it, they don't like the term Khalif anymore, uh, but uh, the term corporate applies. I mean, there's no question about it. It's a California corporation with an ink on the end of it. So um, the corporate OTO um, decided in their infinite wisdom to 
handle things in a corporate manner, but to confer upon me when I was still on their uh, good guy list, uh, the office of Sovereign Grand Inspector General, i.e. I was the sheriff. And it's really what made me decide the, that the corporate OTO was a bogus organization because it coinciding with my getting that, uh, actually I was the first person initiated into that by uh, the new uh, U.S. Grandmaster General, Mr. Scriven, um, um, took him six months to do it because he told me, uh, Bill wrote it and I, I really need to figure out what it means which <laughs> makes a lot of sense if you understand it at all. But in any case, um, I mean, about one sentence in it, I think, was written by Alistair Crowley, not that that's necessarily the better way to do it. Uh, they made me a sheriff, and I had a pass on Delta Airlines. And... Uh, uh, from a friend of mine who worked uh, security and didn't need it uh, at the time, and was one of my personal students who had been alienated from her boyfriend, who was her lodge master, was not an uncommon situation, and asked me as the senior most uh, OTA person in, in this area to be her mentor. So I mentored her, and she loaned me this uh, this pass. So. Not only was I able to uh, uh, inspect local bodies around the southeast, I was able to inspect bodies all over the country. And the more I inspected, the more out of it I was. They didn't know it, but 10 years before I was out of it, I was out of it, if you follow what I mean. I just saw more and more abuse and more and more... Uh, you know, nonsense and stuff that had very little to do with magic and a lot that had to do with fear and uh, molestation and mm -hmm. a lot of drug use on premises. Yeah, because so, you've, you've typified it before as like calling it like you've said it like the last time we had you on, you pretty much said like it's a cult <laughs> is what you, you kind of typified well, it. Well, if you take something that the major attraction for most of the people coming into it are attracted to, you know, uh, not Alistair Crowley as he was, not that he didn't have huge faults, mm -hmm. but what they know about him is sex and drugs and, well, he wasn't into rock and roll, but let's say avant-garde culture um, of his time. Uh, you're going to get people that expect that, and the weight of those people coming in, that's what it played to. Plus, the senior leadership were old hippies. I mean, I may be overstating it. David Scriven, I can't imagine him with long hair and beads going, hey, man, what's happening? <laughs> it just, just isn't. <laughs> that is... Uh, you know, upper middle class California guys uh, who live in uh, houses in Riverside, which he doesn't live there anymore, so I guess I can see that. Um, um, nice houses, but they keep uh, uh, they keep that they're involved in this stuff from their kids. I guess they're grown now, you know, so my information is anyway, long before 
I parted ways with the OTO. And when I published my statement on the OTO, I figured, well, I've resigned from all of my, you know, administrative mm-hmm. positions. So sooner or later, they're going to read this and throw me out, or they're going to read it. And then it took them another six months, and they tried to throw me out. But I, you know, I was sufficiently advanced in the organization. I was already thinking about other things, but I wasn't going to let let go easily. They fired John Crow. They uh, suspended Gerald L. Campo, one of the best that they had. I believe they did the same thing to, to April, uh, his Gerald's wife, who was a fellow Rose Croy chapter head, not to get too much in the weeds of the OTO, which is full mm-hmm. of weeds and weed, but uh, among other uh, delights, I assume. Um, I allege, okay, can't <laughs> been a while, but I was out 10 years before I was out as the long and short of that part of the thing because mm. I just found there were people that walked in the door who were very spiritually advanced and there were people who were ninth degrees, this, you know, the sovereign sanctuary, who didn't know shit. You can edit the word if you want. I don't know how free of the program. But, I mean, they didn't know shit. They, did, they were about as magical as uh, Tub of Lard. <laughs> <laughs> well, Alan, like, one of the, you mentioned, like, the attraction of, of the Lama. Like, Wait, for I'm me, not he, done. I oh, haven't done the commercial yet. Yeah, go so, for it. So, I began to formulate an idea of having a decentralized way of approaching the magical issues because I do think that there the, the initiations without the money or the direction or the dogma are useful things. And um, uh, this guy in California had set up something he called Congregational Thelema. And I thought, well, that would be too, you know, that would be too much associating. I think the word Thelema has become like the word Satanism to a lot of people. It's a, mm, it's yeah. not a good word, and it carries quasi-fascist uh, connotations for too many people that have been, you know, disillusioned by thinking they were getting involved in an organization uh, that was for personal freedom and progress, and finding out it was just the opposite of that. Mm-hmm. A cult, as it gradually became. It didn't happen overnight, but I saw it happen, and I thought, well, the one redeeming virtue of this is, I've always wondered how black lodges come into being. Well, I had also always heard that they were not, you know, uh, uh, Amateurs, they were always people who had reached a certain level of organization and or sophistication and then decided they didn't want anybody else to reach it. So they became a barrier and that by definition is what a Black Lodge is. The, those who have elevated themselves well beyond their ethics and have chosen to see that others do not, whether that's a conscious choice or not, I, I, I leave to the judgment of God. I don't leave it to. Is that more of the symbol? The symbolism of black then is more of shadow than of you know evil. It's more of darkness and shadow. 
Uh, I think it's evil. I think that it's, uh, that's why I use the word cult, because most people think that the occult is fine, but cult denotes something like the Branch Davidians or drinking the Kool-Aid in sunny <laughs> South America. And I don't think they're quite that extreme, but I think none of those organizations started out as that extreme. Uh, my best example is from ufology. Bo and Pete going around collecting uh, gullible young people in the early 70s, and I thought, oh no, not another UFO cult. Maybe they should uh, all read Festinger's book, When Prophecy Fails, because this is this prophecy will fail. Well, along came the Hale-Bopp comment after uh, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> And we all know what happened then, and if any of your listeners are too young, they killed themselves because they had, by killing themselves, they would ascend to the Hale-Bopp comet and go off into the universe and would be the only survivors. They all died. They all died along with Bo, or whatever his real name was. If mm-hmm. uh, I, I knew it, and it's gone. But. It's not lost on me how easy it is once you accept some authoritative leadership. If the leadership goes berserk or becomes overly cynical, they'll lead some of their members, maybe all of their members, into some really ghastly thing, either homicidal or suicidal. And no Mm -hmm. thanks, I don't want anything to do with that. And I'm opposed to it. But anyway, so I didn't didn't want congregational philema, so I first suggested, in line with the uh, uh, free Gnostic movement, which was a bounce off of the uh, OTO's front, the Gnostic Catholic Church, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, 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 Frater Olive, who was a dis- fellow dissenter, he used the term uh, congregational philema, and uh, uh, I forget the guy's name in California. I hate that because really good guy, but um, he had done a similar thing. I decided on free illuminism, mm-hmm. and I used the model of get this: if uh, are either of you, or, I, or do you think your uh, listeners are? Uh, reasonably acquainted with the Dune mythos, not the movies. Yes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I modeled it in part on Leo II's golden path. The notion <laughs> oh, yeah. being oh, yeah. that you disperse throughout the universe and it guarantees the con- continued existence of the human yeah. more, race. More mm-hmm. diversity, more survival. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And also more interesting ideas because each would be its own its own thing. And the mm-hmm. other part of it, frankly, was uh, a form of anarchism called syndicalism, which is um, decentralized uh, local structures that that have no boss, mm-hmm. no dogma. The point in common amongst them is entirely the desire for illumination according to their own lights and mutual aid, mutual support to other bodies doing that same thing, but from whatever perspective they happen to be. Mm. And using the credential that I had from first Michael Berdio and then other sources, 
I um, have chartered something like 100 bodies, most of which still exist. And I also empowered them in two ways. One, that the charter was ad vitam, which means it's for life, which means not even I, who gave them the charter, free, by the way, all of them, that's part of the deal, no fees. Uh, I sort of anti-modeled it on the OTO in that sense. Um, I could not uh, withdraw their, their charter, and thus I had no power over them once I had the right to decide whether to charter or not. If somebody came to me and said, we want to set up a Nazi free illuminist party <laughs> so we can exterminate the Jewish people, I would say, uh, no, you can't do that through me. You need to apply to Stor Stormfront or something because you would be exterminating me and then I couldn't issue any more charters. Uh, or more likely, given the sort of temperament I have, I would have to exterminate you, much to my regret, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> so other than having the decision to charter or not, um, once it was chartered, there was nothing I could do to take it back, and I've had very few regrets. A couple of them have been sour, and all I can do is, you know, write them a nasty letter, but uh, I cannot throw them out. And the other thing is bodies, once chartered, can charter additional bodies. So it hives out in many different directions. And there are now some thousands of people uh, who are loosely affiliated with the Free Illuminist Movement uh, who, who are practicing uh, the quest for illumination in a free way. And that's what I do, and that's what I've been doing for the last 15 years. Okay. But you know, the organization is important, and having having that community and having that congregationalism, uh, do you think that's important than uh, just a lot of people being isolated and pursuing them on, on their own? you think they should get together, actually, in, in physical space? The well, it doesn't necessarily have to be in physical space, but I think that's preferable. The only excuse yeah. in my mind for group work is to have a support group. A support group is when you feel down because the path is not always easy and it has the dark night of the soul built into it at some very advanced point. You need people to be your support group. All people need that, whether they know it or not, because no man is an island. Whoops, I just stole that from John Dunn, but he's dead, so it doesn't matter. Uh, no man is an island unto himself. So don't ask who the bell is ringing for. It's ringing to bring people to that the mega church in Texas that's still uh, <clears throat> spreading, you know. Well, anyway, different subjects. Hello. <laughs> Hi, guys. Hi, Ria. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> I want so, a billing. If I'm going to come to that thing in September, you need to, you know, my name begins with an A. So. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, hopefully, yeah. Hopefully the well, thing in September happens. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, speaking of that, I'll you said that. At, at, I'll sing and dance, and I'll do whatever it is. <laughs> I'm really At good. the Strange Realities Conference, you expressed that you want to do a presentation on the secret chiefs of the Third Order. And you, there's some examples, I guess, online of you talking about this, but 
Could you get into that a little bit? Maybe give them a little preview for us to hope that there is a Strange Realities of 2020? I will tell you everything there is that we know (laughs) about the secret chiefs of the Third Orders, a.k.a. the somewhat discredited term Great White Brotherhood, a.k.a. Ascended Masters, a.k.a. Bodhisattvas, call them what you might, the nine unknown. I will tell you everything there is to know, or you can listen to that really good speech that I gave on Malarabia a year ago, June, which is on YouTube. Unfortunately, it was filmed with, how shall I put it, low production values. That is, it was a microphone on somebody's phone. So the picture Mm. is, you know, one of those narrow pictures and you hear the wind blowing and planes going over while I'm telling all the secrets of the, <laughs> of the secret chiefs. I think the chiefs designed it that way, but you can use that as a teaser. And also, there is a trick. If you have, uh, have the option on YouTube to watch that, and that was June 2017, maybe, or 18. Mm-hmm. It was one of those Junes. Um, um, There's an option to have it uh, give a uh, readout, just as up until a few minutes ago, there was a readout of what we were saying on the lower part of my screen for the visually impaired like me, because I'm uh, age impaired, not visually impaired. But... uh, um, it will give you some idea of what I'll talk about, but uh, I've given it much more thought, and I will be glad to do that topic along with singing two or three, you know, songs. And I used to do a lot of Stephen awesome. Foster and Al Jolson, but it's politically real incorrect now. So I'll yeah, think you told us about it before, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, somewhere out there, there's a tape of me doing that. So- is this, is this secret chiefs? Is this the same as the third order? So what are we dealing with when we talk about the third order? What what well, do you mean okay. by that? The first order are the, um, the sort of golden of, dawn mythology, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the people that practice uh, golden dawn or OTO or a, a type uh, the lower level a, a type rituals. The second order. Um, would be like the, uh, I'll use the Golden Dawn uh, AA system, would be like the middle echelon people who know a great deal, but not the whole enchilada. The third order ceases to be human altogether. And some who are in the third order, uh, using the Tree of Life, uh, they cross the abyss, they, and the abyss is not something I can define. You have to take a look at it before you know. Think of it as a as going into a black, going over a black hole without falling in on a very, very narrow road, known mm-hmm. as the route of the gimel, the camel, which uh, uh, because it's it's just a narrow bridge over the Lord of the Abyss. Once you get past that, you cease to be human in the normal sense, and you become 
omegas, and you have a choice. The choice is either to merge with Katir in the Ein, the Ein Sof Aur, and become something that is no longer accessible to people, or out of compassion, as with bodhisattvas in, in Eastern lore, you choose to turn around and be helpful to humanity and help guide humanity, which sorely needs it, and to, where necessary, protect humanity from certain evils like the Dero and invaders from Alpha Centauri 3B or wherever they're supposed to come from these days, mostly from other dimensions, I think. So the third order are the ascended masters who choose to be helpers to humanity. They're as advanced as those who go on beyond any numbers, but on the other hand, they have chosen to remain connected to the world out of which they emerge. They are not deities. They are human beings who have ascended. So, like you talk about like the euphonauts and the, the contactees and what they were, were they actually being contacted by these third order individuals? Mm, some of them, yes. Some of them were imitating others by making up a pretty wild story. Some were having sure. psychic experiences that had no relation to, uh, more of a relation to mediumship than to uh, uh, a road to Damascus type experience. Uh, uh, you'd really have to be conversant in uh, Joseph Campbell and William James to understand where they were coming from. And uh, some of them uh, are exactly what you're expecting there. They are, they are people that, uh, uh, while I don't think they go to other planets, I think they go to other realms of being. And uh, I accept that. Uh, but clearly some of them are, you know, grabbed by the Black Lodge. I think the whole crowd around Adamski, while there is useful information there, um, I think the sequence of events was the following. And I was very close to the late Jim Mosley, who was the Adamski expose issue of Saucer News was a very famous thing at the time. Um, Adamski did a lot of faking. He was an anti-Semite and was closely associated with George Hunt Williamson, also of the neo-fascist type, who in turn was a follower of uh, Guy Ballard, the founder of the I Am movement, and Mount Shasta yeah. is where the real Aryans live underneath. Blah, 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 blah. That's his version. I think there's something absolutely true about Mount Shasta, but I think he, to some extent you find what you're looking for. And they were all uh, influenced directly or indirectly by William Dudley Pelly. Does that name ring yeah. any bells? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the Silver Shirts. Yeah. Right. The Silver Shirts were not the American Nazi Bund in the 1930s, but it was a group of miscellaneous Americans, not necessarily of German descent, 
I think a lot of them were Klansmen who latched on to the neo-Nazi thing. And they were, uh, they were fascists or Nazis, depending on their particular thing. I must say this, a little personal anecdote <clears throat> told me by my father, but I, he was, well, he had his wild tales, but this was not one I can tell. He and one of the local rabbis in Augusta, I don't know which one, but probably the one that cut off the end of my, you know what, um, uh, which I have no regrets about. It's a long time ago, and I was drunk at the time, but uh, in any case. It's, it's hard um, to remember, right? Uh, it's real hard to remember, and that's fine with me, let me tell you. Because I might have said, whoa, just a minute here. Or, wow, just a minute here. I've got business over at the Catholic Church. Sanctuary, sanctuary. They don't do that. But, uh, <clears throat> but they don't do anything else. Anyway, um, uh, so uh, the, the rabbi... Probably the reform rabbi and uh, uh, my father decided to infiltrate the local branch of the Silver Shirts, which they did. And the stories they came back with were exactly what you would expect. This was obviously a neo Nazi, well, not neo, a Nazi group. And when the war broke out here, unlike, unlike in Europe, um, they, uh, they, the, the leader, the leaders, uh, now I have the hiccups. It must be caused by Bill Breeze and his curse upon me. Let me do a quick banishing ritual. Fuck you, Breeze. Get out of my house. <laughs> om, om, om. It works every time. What was I saying? Oh, yes. So they infiltrated, and uh, what my father told me was they were they were awful. And when the war broke out here, they were the leaders were put in jail. But Adamski and Williamson were, you know, just peons in, at that time. And then the next thing you know, Adamski is writing his basic story. Uh, I think he wrote it as nonfiction first tried to sell it as fiction to uh, one of the science fiction pulp magazines that were very popular then, mainly because of the racy covers, and uh, uh, failed to do so. And then he presented it once again as what he thought it was, which was factual, and it did well. And then Williamson wrote some actually very literate books, but with, you know, dark undertones. And... Uh, uh, that that's one school, but I don't think that that should smear people like um, uh, uh, Dan Fry or uh, or uh, name three contactees. I'll tell you, I'll tell you whether they pass or not. I, I met a good many of them in their uh, latter years, uh, but uh, most of them were. They didn't seem like they were lying or, or trying to make money. They seemed like people who had had some kind of experience, not unlike the later abductees who are much more respected in, in um, 
uh, ufology circles than are the contactees. I don't actually think there's a real line between them. I imagine some of the abduction stories are fake, but not the ones I've investigated there. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think some of the contactees, especially like Orfeo Angelucci, I think that he definitely had some kind of real experience. I, and and I think that there was that were a lot of them that had some kind of ex, real experience that was later maybe twisted, or maybe they 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 kind of because they they had the, the, like this bit of fame or whatever that they kind of were able to like. Like the, the like their story just grew and grew, but at the kernel of it, there was a real experience there. Yeah, I, exactly. And the, the the tendency to embroider after you have a successful story is a common human failing because it, it, it's not necessarily a failing on the part of the person experiencing it. I know Yuri Geller. Uh, made a pithy comment that I will not quote exactly, but basically they expect you to, uh, uh, if you can bend spoons, then you uh, probably are a great lover. I'm really, really, really editing what he, what he had to say about that. He said, <laughs> he said it ain't necessarily so. <laughs> I'm, well, I, I'm quite sure that's the case. We like to get way in, way in the weeds on conspiranormal, um, and this idea of contacting the other and that there being the secret chiefs of the Third Order who are kind of here to help us with the White Lodge, and then there's something else that I guess is helping with the Black Lodge, or you said there's a, a point where someone had to make a choice, and having both you together now really makes me mm -hmm. want to get into this, because I know both of of your um kind of leanings in in politics like where does mm -hmm. this come into politics then and of course we've talked about there being this you know these weird cults with uh fascist connections that also mm -hmm. claim to contact something and we know that oh, there's been do. secret societies and, re and revolutionary activities since, since the 18th and 19th century so mm -hmm. what where does politics come into this for both of you guys on, on those levels? Like it goes all the way to the top, I guess. Rand, you get yourself sent to Guantanamo. I'll just. <laughs> I was, I was actually going to mention earlier, I was thinking about this. Uh, we moved on, but I was going to ask Alan, um, you, you know, in my vision, like this, this illumination, like I, I call it the lemma, but this vision of a better world, of a world where people uh, provide mutual aid to each other, a world where there, there's no hierarchy and there's freedom and liberty for everyone. Um, you know, I don't think that that world is going to be built by social clubs. Uh, I, I think it's going to require direct action. And I was curious if you thought it would be valuable for people who maybe want to build this better kind of world to uh, do some reading um, by revolutionaries. Like, in, in particular, I was thinking of um, sort of Maoist insurgency. You know, I'm not necessarily saying that people should carry out a Maoist insurgency. I'm just saying that <laughs> maybe there's some ideas there about building community and about reaching out to the public. Do, do we all need to join know? the Shining Path? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> 
No, they had a habit of shooting farmers in the name of the revolution. Yeah, yeah. It's unfortunate aspects to that. But I, I think the idea... And by the like, way, their American counterpart, at one time during a bizarre period, I became involuntarily the bodyguard of Bob Avakian, the chairman <laughs> of the Revolutionary Communist Party. Wow. <laughs> That's way too long uh, <laughs> a story. But uh, I thought it was one of the most hilarious... I had to to bite my tongue to keep from laughing. It was, I was recruited off the street. It was <laughs> terribly interesting. The guy is lucky to have gotten out of there alive because <laughs> we had what I called socialism in one neighborhood in Atlanta in those days. Mm-hmm. So every leftist tendency, because the cops didn't even come in the neighborhood. They were scared of them. You, you had every leftist tendency that ever existed in the world. Some that you know, the ones that were Marxist-Leninists were uh, uh, they. They had what I call franchises. One had the Chinese franchise. One had had the uh, uh, Maoist franchise. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, one even had the Albanian Inverhoja franchise, which I thought was <laughs> wow. You know, I thought. There's, there's somebody here representing the Albanians, you know, that's just, <laughs> I can't imagine how many members they have, but they do have a newspaper. They all have okay. a newspaper. Mm-hmm. Um, but in any case, uh, there was, and there was one other that I thought was really revealing because they were the uh, Campuchia advocates of the Khmer Rouge. And they received a free trip to Kampuchea to see all of the progress that was being, that's Cambodia, folks, see all the progress that the, uh, that the, the mighty past the Maoist people were making in Cambodia. And they came back and they said, we're, we're not communists anymore. We're joining NATO. <laughs> they, got a, they, they got a holiday in Cambodia. Uh, how <laughs> yeah. nice. that changed their lives forever. So, <laughs> what so but, but my main question... They throw yeah. out by the Vietnamese who said... But uh, the main part of my question is, are these... Do these political struggles down here, so to say, have uh, occult and celestial analogs, or are there... It seems like throughout time, these different different political struggles have claimed to be in contact with these others uh, that are supposedly on their side. Well, let me answer it this way: the the biggest problem I see on the on the hard left, uh, whether it's in the old meaning of the term, libertarian left or authoritarian left, um, uh, is that they tend to be militantly pro-materialist uh, and hostile to anything of a spiritual nature. That's not universally true, but it's very common to the detriment, I believe, of, of the entire movement. I am famous for saying, lose that, uh, you know, lose that connection because it's, it's wrong. You don't get informed by the true nature of the universe, you get informed by some guy who was writing in the 19th century and had a really bad life, which is not a good start if that's the direction you want to go in. 
Yeah, because you know, having a materialist basis is like important. Like having a, a you know an idea of class consciousness and stuff is important. But I think that, and I, I totally agree with you there, Alan. That I think a lot of these movements completely ignore the spiritual, which goes against human nature because man is a spiritual animal by nature. After the Soviet Union fell, the Communist Party of Russia, after being illegal for four or five years, decided it being the second largest party in Russia these days, that the church wasn't really such a bad idea after all. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it just, it because, uh, how shall I put it, when, uh, when Gerald L. Campo, my friend, uh, was arguing about the corporate nature of the OTO, and how it was being imposed on the uh, the ecclesiastical arm of the OTO, the Gnostic Catholic Church, so-called. Actually, it's a mystery play. He said, they're taking the juice out of it. And I think that's a really profound thought. You can't do it without the juice. It's not a matter of superstition. It's not a matter of abstractions like, what is the ultimate nature of the universe? Nobody knows that. It's ridiculous. Ask any physicist, they, they will say, oh, well, if I'm asking for a grant, I would say blah, blah, blah. But you get right down to it, nobody knows. It's, it's a so, very, very yeah. complex question. So if you have what I have done with, with, with Illuminism, it's not a political movement, but it is a movement with spiritual intent but political structure. In other words, it is structured like the IWW. Oh God, I got to explain the IWW. No, I think I think we're pretty politically literate around here. We know international workers of the world. Unite. Prove it. Sing the, the international in three <laughs> languages. Arise, ye children of. Starve it. We're going to chase off three quarters of the The international yeah. Unite the human race. <laughs> Only the Wimmer Goldman. That's okay. That's Dylan. He's sort of dead. He's so you're, dead. you're saying that, uh, that, that. What if he got a. And he got a. Out of that glass case. <laughs> walked over to the Kremlin <laughs> and said, could you please bury me where I asked to be buried in, in my home in Leningrad? And I said, I'm sorry, there is no more Leningrad. Well, Petersburg, <laughs> I'm sorry, it's St. Petersburg. St. Haven't you learned anything? Uh, well, go back to your glass coffin or we'll put you in the wall like we did Stalin by night. <clears throat> So on the That's other side, inside, though, inside commie jokes, I think. Yeah, yeah, we got it. But on the other side, you know, the the extreme right, they are definitely they have no qualms about using uh, using spiritual concepts and uh, having esoteric claims. And it seems to be part of the reason why they're on fire right now. And it's they seem to have no qualms with it. If you follow the, the Pew religious survey, I, I do think there are flaws in it. 
but that that group of people gets a little smaller and a little older all the time. And I suspect that uh, any kind of fundamentalist pitch is not helping uh, any kind of spirituality at all. I yeah. think Pew is asking the wrong question. They're asking 1950s questions. Are you religious? Do you go to church? And that's how they define it. Well, people are not going to church very much anymore, except the mega churches, and they're all going to die from COVID-19 because they're going to church now like idiots, you know, because God is going to protect them, just like the snake handlers, you know, of whom you don't hear very much these days, as most of them are dead. But uh, <laughs> they handle that that serpent one time too many. They drank that strychnine three times too many. Uh, interesting from a spiritual standpoint and from a, a paranormal standpoint, there are more occasions where they get bitten and they drink strychnine and they wouldn't die. The ones that made headlines is when they do. But eventually that leaves them with a very small congregation. <laughs> <laughs> The percentages get them, uh, although there is such a thing as uh, um, mind over matter, I think, for sure. Um, having said that, do the secret chiefs have a political agenda? Yes. Well, yes, they do. I, I, I don't profess to know exactly what it is, but what I do profess is that I think two things, two things very different, and we'll get back to hell here for just a moment, because I think we skipped over something a little too too quickly and, and missed an important point. Um, they are probably looking with favor on the experiment with doing decentralized but mutually supportive locals and we call them locals, in free Illuminism, because they're prospering and there are very few complaints about it. Every now and then there's some friction between uh, a, a, a few groups, but the growth of the movement in the last 15 years, mostly in areas that I haven't had any responsibility for at all, except maybe I helped set it in motion along with uh, 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 Aleph, who uh, is emeritus, and some other go-getters. Mostly, though, the growth has been significantly in former Soviet satellite countries in Eastern Europe and in Latin America. I mean, there is growth in Africa, there's growth in Australia, there's growth in Japan, but most of the people who would make up thousands of of our, you can't call them members because there's no corporate existence, but uh, adherence to the free luminist uh, ideal in their organization are in Latin America and Eastern Europe. And, you know, modestly here in the US and Canada and uh, in the UK. Uh, maybe that's a term I need to stop using. In England and Scotland and, and Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> and in some parts of Wales, <laughs> but uh, definitely over in the, over on those islands. <laughs> and 
not so much in Western Europe, where um, uh, the rival there, I think, is the mainstream Freemasonry, and to some extent in this country, too. They don't like us. I don't like them. So, yeah. Not all Masons. I mean, well, half of my you, yeah. first cousins were, were or are Masons. What would you say to um, maybe members of more traditional secret societies like that who almost have an idea that you would call a Black Lodge idea that you have to keep secrets in the dark from the masses because of eventual fear of, of persecution and that you can lose knowledge because of things being in the light. You know, wouldn't that be, that's kind of their argument, I think. Well, I don't know of anyone uh, who's been involved in the magical occult community in the last century or so that was any more elitist and snobby about it than Aleister Crowley. So yeah. uh, I, I think uh, his premise was pretty much uh, mutually contradictory, which was to say that he was an elitist and favored an elite and even believed a leisure class, which I believe we know what he's driving mm -hmm. at. That means him and his, you know, Mm -hmm. his favored people having enough money to be able to do this stuff and not else, not else. Um, well, we were. Uh, I don't, I'm retired, but I'm old. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have the luxury of being old. Yes, well, yeah, older, which is brings me to that other point, but don't let me get away from saying something about the hell your phenomena not about specifically about failure, but the phenomenon that it has generated. However, mm -hmm. let, let me just make, make this point clear. I don't think secrecy from the great unwashed, quote, unquote, does anything any good whatsoever. Secrecy is the enemy of truth. And another enemy of truth is the notion of we and they, we the elite versus they the great unwashed dumbasses that don't know doo-doo, uh, uh, as uh, Michael Jackson would have put it, from Shinola, isn't quite as alliterative if you say it that way. But <laughs> nevertheless, there you go. I mean, you know, that's just, I, I find that to be foul. There's nothing really secret. And <laughs> If there were, I've seen to it in the last 15 years, you know, if they bump me off tonight or tomorrow or the people in the lobby <laughs> give me some horrible disease, it's too so, late. Yeah. It's all out there, you know. So, and yeah, I think it's, to, it's a totally antiquated way of looking at things. I don't well, think it was ever legitimate. I think there was a mm -hmm. reason for discretion with the, let's say, the sex magic stuff mm -hmm. in 1915. Mm -hmm. um, um, uh, it caused uh, the OTO Lodge in England, which was rather large, while Crowley was uh, uh, going through the flesh pots of New York, uh, whore by whore, uh, one at a time. Well, probably one, one or two at a time. I don't, I don't know if they, you know, peed on the bed for him or anything. That's something <laughs> that, that degenerates who are definitely not magicians are prone to do with cameras running from the... Uh, 
FSB, but that's an entirely different political story. <laughs> P-tape is real. <laughs> you know, I, I, Alan, I think like you're definitely completely 100% right about magical technology being free and open source as people in the, the information technology world know. Um, and that's something I'm super passionate about, about getting magical tools to people, getting magical knowledge out, and, and it all being free. Uh, for anyone who wants to come to it. But what about, um, like, let's say, initiations or mystery plays, for maybe a better word, or something people would understand. Should the contents of those initiations remain secret um, because it's supposed to present a narrative that maybe only makes sense in context? Uh, it's a good question, and that would be something I have mixed feelings about. But let me put it this way. Um you can read the Gnostic Mass anywhere, Lever 15 Gnostic Mass, or mm -hmm. variations thereof, since it's out of copyright now. Mm -hmm. I say, it's out of copyright now. I say to the world, it's out of copyright now. <laughs> and, and, um, but when you see it, it's an entirely different experience. Mm -hmm. It's not a secret ritual. Anybody can come, unless the local body is, uh, I'm not really much in favor of it because I believe it's just a recruiting tool for the OTO these days, but it has a numinosity about it that is only possible in person, mm -hmm. in participating in it. The same thing would be true of uh, the Roman Catholic Mass, you know, mm -hmm. or the, uh, mm -hmm. the any high church uh, numinous ritual. My first spiritual experience, which had nothing to do with belief systems as such, was something that wasn't only secret, it was in the Siddur, or the, I just hadn't, you know, I, I um, my father took me, there were two, there were three synagogues in Augusta, Georgia, if you can believe that, uh, <laughs> a very, 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 very reformed congregation. Uh, and then there was what called itself an Orthodox congregation that was really conservative. And then in downtown where uh, the Jews used to live when my mother was a kid, there was a house that had been converted into a synagogue, God knows when, or mm -hmm. presumably. Uh, and my father, who was not a, he had uh, agoraphobia, as I do, and uh, he would always, if he would go, it would only be on important holidays and would stand in the back. He was uh, lukewarm, uh, he was uh, strongly identified with Jewishness, but not so strongly identified with religious aspects. But on important holidays, that's where he would choose to go. So I had never been there, and I don't remember how old I was. I remember I must have been at least 12, because I remember seeing a cute girl going up to the women's gallery, and I thought, hmm, that's a cute girl. Uh, I wish she would stay downstairs, but that was <laughs> heresy. So I could, you know, say, hi, I just got back from Israel. That, you know. <laughs> Uh, I was living on a kibbutz where people are very free with themselves, if you know what I mean. <laughs> but anyway, I walk into this place, and I walk into a 15th century shtetl synagogue, 
and it was a numinous experience. Uh, There was no rabbi there. There were just men who looked like they were older than most, you know. Methuselah was one of the younger folks there. They had long white beards and they were all wrapped up in their taluses and they and they were davening in a way. I mean, the Reform Temple that I belonged to, there was a nice Gentile lady playing an organ in the in the balcony, <laughs> which we would all sing the Shema to, and that was the end of the Hebrew part of the whole thing. But that that was back then. They're much better about that now. In any case, uh, I thought. This is really cool. This <laughs> is cool as breeze. Then they started selling off the parts in the Torah, and I thought, well, they can't exchange money on the Sabbath if they're Orthodox, but they make bids on it. This is a way it was carried on for hundreds of years during the darkest times for the Jewish people. But I wasn't, you know, I was too young to really get that, what I got was the numinosity of this highly ritualized, there was a guy standing at the bima in the front uh, uh, reading from the Torah, and he was, he must have been 174 if he was a day. <laughs> and he was crying and beating on the Torah and doing stuff that would have gotten him killed, you know, in the other types of circles, the current ready people that live in Jerusalem and throw rocks at you, but um, I'm not talking about the Arabs, I'm talking about the Haredi Jews, but they're, this guy, uh, are you following this? This is, (laughs) I thought, oh, this, this is real. What I do on Saturday when I say, Shema Yisrael! And the lady in the attic is going, phantom of the opera. And <laughs> so, okay, today's sermon is about, I mean, that's why the churches are empty. But um, uh, do you follow what I'm trying to say here? Yeah. Some Real things are numinous, and it isn't because mm-hmm. they are hidden. It's because they are real. I don't yeah. care how many times you've read uh, the actual, real, annotated third degree of the OTO. Mm-hmm. When you're carrying those sacks of rocks, or whatever the approved version is these days, round and round and feeling the weight of the world, you get it. This is about death. Mm-hmm. You get it. There's no way that knowing that in advance is going to make any difference to whether what you experience is meaningful or not. And the same Mm -hmm. is true with Masonic rituals. The same is true with Golden Dawn rituals. The Mm -hmm. rituals themselves are fine. It's what happens before and after. I I recall something that someone said about uh, Fundamentalist Church. When they're singing and jumping up and saying hallelujah, that's true. It may have been Marjo Gordner that said this. Yeah, it was. And uh, uh, he said, that's, that's great. The enthusiasm is literally enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. But then when they get around to preaching sin and damnation, they completely lose me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Alan, you had a point that you said not to let you get off of. That's uh, a point about Hellier. Well, we've only been on for 15 minutes. Yeah, but- no, keep going. Keep going. <laughs> but yeah, I like, I like this idea about that spiritualism. Yeah. 
Okay. Here's the, the, the deal. I'm sounding like Joe Biden. Here's the deal. Here's number the deal, one, Jack. Number one. <laughs> three, number three. Number two. Number three. Well, you can manage to actually, you know, get a full sentence out without having to start over three times. So you're doing better than he is. Well, I'm <laughs> six years younger. So. <laughs> this is the the bowl of the elder, the last hurrah of the uh, of war babies. So. <laughs> yes, sir. Think about it. Uh, okay. So, I think that after the generation that gave rise to all of these organizations of antiquity, the antiquity being something like 1968, 69, the real antiquity, I mean, uh, drawing on earlier groups, I think it's run its course. And I think we're in another one of those dry periods. And you will notice if you follow demographic stuff, which I do, that the average age, exceptions noted, of people who are interested in and involved in magic is at best uh, pushing middle age at this point. Mm -hmm. So I think the secret chiefs do not are not ageist, but I think they're, they're looking for a new generation with a new outlook. And I don't, you know, I don't ask people their age, but it looks to me like uh, the vanguard of the occult proletariat are people like the Newkirks. And even more, someone like Tyler Strand, who is a hero to me, although I wish you would wear a helmet. But uh, in any in any case, and I wish you wouldn't go alone. But you know, uh, uh, I think that they set the tone. They do proper field investigations. They're not doing formal rituals because they don't know where it's going. Whereas in a formal ritual, you have a script. A mm -hmm. script you where to go and you can't go anywhere else or somebody from above yells at you and revokes your charter or something <laughs> yeah something i've heard about somewhere or other i can't remember where <laughs> i think it was a letter i got you are expelled sign p.s this letter is copyrighted and you may not use it anywhere the approach of that whole system is built on the past well mm -hmm. The, the, the Newkirks and associates don't, their past is just an experimental ghost hunting, uh, which they uh, would take, uh, you know, they gave them a, a field experience, but not into any of this uh, weird stuff that we are drawn to, like lies. No, that's mm -hmm. good for women moths to a life of <laughs> and therefore they're not following any roadmap mm -hmm. they're following the synchronicities and they're younger they're noticeably younger than your average I mean, person isn't that isn't that the the child the the aeon of the child the, the is aeon that of what it's about yeah mm -hmm. yep well, we were young too when we started this, yeah. but we talked about. <laughs> but but that's the same current that's 
still going. I mean, that's the idea that current 93 is still going. And so it would, it would reflect those same, you know, still emphasis on the younger, on the people who are outside of the, what's been the distribution of, of the, this knowledge for so long, etc. But it's without the constraints of a specific goal. Yeah. They mm-hmm. follow the synchronicity. So it's even even younger. It's like without parents almost. Oh, yeah. It's, it's totally new. I mean, they make use of my book, but they don't necessarily uh, go with what I have to say. They just, you know, that's one piece of advice. They have this other uh, gentleman I can't think of his name at the moment, but uh, he is also roughly of my generation, Mm -hmm. and they consult with him, have great respect for him, apparently have been close to him for a long time, but they do their own approach, and they do it in front of a camera, a good camera, with good professional, they're they're documentarians. Mm -hmm. My documentarian for the 15 years we did the Great Arabia Mountain Working was to take a group photo at the end of each... (laughs) And the point of that was to see the changeover that took place over the years. That was from my experience in the OTO when I realized that when I look back at all the pictures of the enthusiastic, then young people that were, you know, in the early uh, degrees in the OTO, they were Mm -hmm. all gone. All of them. Every single one of them, they're no longer involved. And what a shame to run through a large but limited group of people that uh, would be interested in these things that all of them have either gone elsewhere or more likely been alienated from the whole thing because of that approach. I think we're seeing the beginning of a new approach and I'll go further than that. The fact that I believe, as I say in Hellier, that they're being guided by the secret chiefs, I think that the synchronicities, if they persist and there are always points at which whoever the weakest link is is going to say let's not do this anymore it's too Mm -hmm. dangerous or too scary or goes too far or jesus won't like it or whatever the you know whatever their particular uh, boogeyman is Mm -hmm. um if they persist i think they will become they and the people that have been enthralled by their work will become the new uh, the new paradigm in paranormal uh, investigation. They mm-hmm. aren't the, la- the, the lab rat runners that uh, constitute formal parapsychology, mm-hmm. which figures if they run enough rats the same way and somebody else, out, uh, some skeptic runs it and gets the same results, they become <laughs> respectable, and that's what it's all about. No, mm-hmm. it's not. It's about self-discovery, and that mm-hmm. is not amenable to that. And uh, on the other end of it are the ritual magicians and the ufologists. And the, as my uh, late friend just passed away at the age of, what age did he die at? Jean Duplantier. 93. They're all dying at 93. <laughs> <laughs> Olive keeps pointing that out to me. There's a 93 everywhere now. Okay, well, yeah. Rudolf Hess died at 93, yeah. so make of it what you want. Well, me and, me and Adam both went to the, we went to the chicken wing place 
like back to back on the nights after we did the show and we were seated yep. at table 93 yep. back to back. Yep. Yep. And don't forget, Hellier equals 93. Yes, it does. I'm the one that discovered that, I believe. Um, uh, and, you know, if you want to go for that, there's also on that mysterious uh, documentation that was, uh, I guess, faxed to them or emailed to them. It says... Mm-hmm. The, the out, out of unrelated anything else, it's just 31. And they presented me with that on camera. And the first thing I occurred that occurred to me was, well, I published the first uh, uh, authorized edition of Akkad's Libra 31 with my annotation, because I'm always thinking about my own stuff. And then I thought, <laughs> after the camera was, ah. There is a more obvious choice, considering what we're discussing. Discussing, not disgusting. Libra 31 is Libra Alvarez. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a cod's fault for confusing me, but, uh, but he's dead now, and that's not important anymore. No. <laughs> True. Hey guys, this is this is Adam. So this episode turned out to be extremely long. So what we decided to do was something that we really haven't ever, I don't think, done before at all, which is split this one in two. So guys, you're pretty much going to get two episodes out of this. So stay tuned next week when we continue part two of our interview with Alan Greenfield with Ren Collier sitting in as co-host. Um, so just a couple of announcements. Uh, we hope everybody is doing well, that you guys are making it through all this that's going on right now. Uh, we're trying really hard to entertain you guys, give you some, something to listen to and other things that are kind of going on right now with some friends of ours, which is Dr. Future has, finally put his, his, a book out. And that book is called, it's called two masters and two gospels. This is volume one. And that's now available from Amazon and it's uh, available on Kindle for a low price of eight ninety five. That's 553 pages. This of course is volume one of a three part volume. And also our good friend Joel, who uh, sat in with us on the 300th episode, um, he has a new, his band, or his, called Great Grandson, and you guys want to follow them on Instagram, uh, there's going to be, they're also going to be on Spotify, but it's, uh, they've got an EP called Modern Weed coming out on uh, 420 which I guess is uh, appropriate. And we may be uh, talking to him pretty soon, uh, either online or here on page on, on Patreon about his, uh, his release. So basically that's it guys. Um, we want to thank you all for tuning into this episode of conspire normal. And don't forget guys, we have our Patreon. We just put up another episode, uh, not too long ago about echo the dolphin uh mr rob has been joining us on there as well so guys uh, please check that out you can check all that out for one dollar on patreon 
Uh, there's several different archives going all the way back to the end of 2016. So you guys can hear a lot of interviews and a lot of one-time, one-off things that we've done. And uh, also YouTube channel, Conspiracy Normal Podcast. So check it out, guys. Thanks a lot. And we will see you with the next installment of our interview with Alan Greenfield on YouTube channel, Conspiranormal Podcast.